Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end for the appointed time is still to come. So this is like dealing with this historical event, okay, which we've seen. It came to completion and all that good stuff. We also see that this is what the Lord allowed to happen. It's what he allowed to happen. We see the why is towards the end there in verse 35, because they need to be refined, cleansed, made pure. So this is all on purpose. Refining metal is a brutal process. The metal can't become pure until it's been put through a regimen of extreme heat. Spiritually, people have to be purified as well. There has to be a method of removing the impurities from our lives so that we can become cleansed and refined. Today, Pastor James shows us how the Jewish people have undergone and will continue to undergo a refining process. Their oppression isn't in vain. God is using it for his purpose. The same is true of your trials. You are being refined. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Daniel chapter 11 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Antiochus Epiphany shows up and he's like, I mean, he's going to stop all sacrifices. He's going to, he's basically just like turning his frustration onto the Jews. His goal was to stamp out Judaism. That was his goal. That was a spoken goal that he had. He wanted to completely eliminate all forms and types and talk of Judaism, the religious practices of the Jews. He wanted to do away with that completely. So, you know, he got his rear end kicked, and so now he's got to, like, you know, he's a bully, and so now he's got to turn that on to somebody else. And so he's like, oh, yeah, Israel, let's go beat up those guys. And that's kind of what he does. And he has some people in Israel, some Jews in Israel, who forsake the covenant, for the most part, and they help him out. Like, they're traitors. They're just traitors. Call them traitors. You can call them spineless cowards. That's, I like that terminology. Because that's what they are. Um, You may think that's harsh, but it's not. It's not. And here's why. He kills 80,000 Jews. He kills 80,000 of them. Murders them. For what reason? No reason. No reason. None at all. He takes 40,000 of them as prisoners, and then he sells another 40,000 of them as slaves. So there are 160,000 Jews who suffer at this man's hands. And so anybody who was living in Israel at that moment in time who turned their back on their fellow brother, brothers and sisters, to help this psycho out, they are worthy of the term spineless cowards because that's what they are. How dare you? Why would you do that? How would that ever be okay to let this invader come in and murder your family and you be okay with it? That's what was happening in Israel at this time in history. It's, it's a weird time, but imagine Daniel. Daniel is still, like, he's a Jew who's living in Babylon who has a heart for, like, Israel, like, my country. And he's like, are you, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, this is what's going to happen. 
as Antiochus Epiphanes. He wants to just completely just, well, we've heard this terminology recently with, with Iran. We want to blow Israel off the face of the map. We want to just completely eliminate them as if they never existed. And that's not even just the sentiment of some, some, not all, not all people living over there in the Middle East, but that sentiment is shared by other world leaders on this planet. We'd just be a lot better if the Jews didn't exist anymore. And you're like, how is this okay? How is that okay to say? And you're still part of some of these political groups. I don't get it, but okay. Antiochus, is, he's going to do his best to try to eliminate these guys. And in fact, he's going to just ransack the whole place. Verse 31, it says, his army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to daily sacrifices and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. That's the abomination of desolation, okay? That's where he goes into the temple and sets up an altar dedicated to Zeus. We think it's Zeus. It seems like it probably was Zeus, thus indicating he still had his connections to his Greek mythology, okay? So this is where it's like, this is, we know this is specifically speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, because there's some things that happen here where you're like, wait, is this like that guy who was a type of the Antichrist, or is this talking about the Antichrist? Well, we know the Antichrist, capital A Antichrist, from the book of, well, we know First Thessalonians, but also Revelation, he will do the exact same thing, but the image he sets up for everybody to worship is an image of himself. He's not setting up an image of Zeus you know, this bearded, curly-headed, or I don't even know what the, there's like a Marvel, I don't know if there's a Marvel thing. I don't really keep up with any of that stuff. Um, I watch all the movies, but I have no idea what's going on. Um, but uh, what's it? There's like a Thor. He's not related. I think that's a different mythology, whatever. Um, you got Zeus, curly-headed guy, lightning bolt. Like he's not setting up that image for everybody to worship. He's going to set up his own image, right? So he would, the Antichrist, capital A Antichrist, would still have this God-made manifest kind of mentality, but like when it came down to worshiping, he's like, no, no, you worship me. This Antiochus Epiphanes, which you could call a lowercase a Antichrist, meaning he's like a type, he's going to set up this altar to Zeus, and then he's also going to go in and sacrifice pigs on this altar, which is, um, we know the Jews, the, to the Jews, the pig is an unclean animal. And to do that in the temple, the most like holiest of places to have pig's blood would be literally smeared everywhere. He was making a point, really. And, and he did a lot of damage to the Jews. And uh, he ended up taking away a lot of the temple stuff and uh, just stealing a bunch of that. And I think they, the modern estimates of the of some of the treasures that he took from there equal uh, somewhere around like a billion dollars in today's money, what he stole from the temple. Crazy. Like, just, this dude's nuts. And he did all this stuff. He, he put a stop to the daily sacrifices. He, he set up this abomination of desolation thing that we know from the book of Thessalonians. It says, he will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant. That's, again, speaking of some of these traitors, right? They're within the land. But the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. So there's a group, a remnant, there's always a remnant, who will fight back against him. We know those guys as the Maccabeans, the Maccabean Rebellion, which is a really cool story. That's the whole Hanukkah story, okay? So Judas Maccabee led this revolt, and uh, it's just really cool. They, they rose up, and they conquered, 
okay? So there was, praise God, there was a remnant. Praise God, there's always a remnant who are willing to fight no matter what the cost is, no matter what the cost is, okay? So they do this. They did this. They, they win. They, they win their land back, basically. Verse 33, it says, wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed uh, during these persecutions. This is all happening during this time period. Little help will arrive, and many who join them will, will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end for the appointed time is still to come. So this is like dealing with this historical event, okay, which we've seen. It came to completion and all that good stuff. We also see that this is what the Lord allowed to happen. It's what he allowed to happen. We see the why is towards the end there in verse 35, because they need to be refined, cleansed, made pure. So this is all on purpose, all on purpose. Now is where we transition from lowercase antichrist to capital A antichrist. This last, last portion here, starting in verse 36. It says, the king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed but only until the time of wrath is complete. For what has been determined will surely take place. So we can have confidence in that. Whatever God has determined to happen will surely take place. He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors or for the the God loved by women or for any other God, for he will boast that he is greater than them all. Now, real quick, there's a fascinating little thing within verse 37 there no respect for the gods of his ancestors. There are some who believe that this Antichrist, capital A Antichrist, will actually be of Jewish descent. And I, you can't say that they're wrong. You just can't, because nobody knows, right? We think like, well, he'll come from Europe. Well, there's a lot of Jews that lived in Europe. <laughs> Still are. Um, remember when they got dispersed everywhere? Yeah. So he very well could be of Jewish descent. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. And your Bible may say like, Kind of, I'm trying to think of the phraseology here, something along the lines of like no love for women or something along those lines. Some people also speculate that this Antichrist guy will actually have like no desire for women at all. You know, they almost like classify him as being homosexual. Now, is that true or not? Don't know. Can't say it's true. Can't say it's not true. But that's the terminology there is just, it's weirdly phrased in how it's translated. That's why there's people who would think that. And does it matter? Not all that much in one sense. Now, the other viewpoint on this, and I just want to, I'm just sharing you guys, with you guys the different viewpoints so you kind of have a good, rounded viewpoint. Because you might encounter some of this if you're like, yeah, our church is going through the book of Daniel. We just went through chapter 11. They're like, oh, wait, did you know that he's this or he's that? And you're like, well, maybe. Um, but the other way is what this is, Speaking of is um, New Living Translation kind of gets close to it uh, for the God loved by women. There was this notion, especially at this time, women greatly desired to be the ones who gave birth to the Messiah. Like, who wouldn't want to do that, right? Like, because they knew he's going to be born of a virgin. And so that's where some of 
some people, the other guys, would, um, would commentate on that, saying that that's probably what it's speaking to, is that he's, like, not coming from that at all. Like, nobody's desiring to give birth to the Antichrist. Like, I don't, I don't think so. I hope not. Um, <laughs> I can't even imagine why you would even want to. But So it's just distinguishing between the Antichrist and Jesus. Like, Jesus was desired to be birth. Like when Mary got that announcement, like she was humbled by the fact that she was selected from all the women in Israel. She was selected. Like that's incredible. Now, not all the women qualified. We understand that because the family tree had to be accurate. It had to be right. She had to be right from the right lineage, but that's a blessing. So if God showed up and be like, you're going to be the one who enters it, who ushers in the antichrist, you'd be like, oh, Oh, no baby announcements. No, like, no, 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 no shower. No, nothing. Like, you don't, you wouldn't want that. And so this is just comparing and contrasting. I tend to agree more with that perspective of it than the other one. Because I think that he just, it kind of speaks to like, Jesus was like welcomed into this world, so to speak, and would have, you know, anybody would have wanted to birth him into this world. Uh, the other guy, nah, now I'll pass. Like, Lord, is there somebody else? Like, how about somebody else, right? So I think that that's technically what that's speaking of. But again, it's, it's hard to be dogmatic on that because of the way that it's like, the way that it's all put together and phrased out. I disagree with that one a little bit more than, than the other viewpoint. So it says, or for any other God, continue on it within that verse, he will boast that he is greater than them all. So this is obviously, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes was the one, he was setting up Zeus. And yeah, he gave himself the nickname God made manifest. But we know that when it came down to worship and all that stuff, he established this other image. The Antichrist is going to be like, I'm, no, you worship me. I'm better than any God that's ever been around. Okay. So continue on with this guy. It says, instead of these, uh, verse 38, he will worship the God of fortresses, a God his ancestor never knew, and lavish on him gold, silver, precious stones, and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign God's help, he will attack the strongest fortresses. He will honor those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as a reward. So he's going to be, basically, he's going to be a man of war. Verse 40, then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. And we're like, wait, we're back to this again? Kind of. King of the north will storm out with chariots and charioteers and a vast navy. He will invo- invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. He will enter the glorious land of Israel and many nations will fall. But Moab, Edom, and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries, and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be his servants. Okay, so this is king of the north. This is Antichrist we're talking about. But then the news from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate many. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents. He's going to set up camp. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. And he dies. Uh, and so uh, this is all like if in your brain, you're probably thinking like, is this like the Battle of Armageddon and all this good stuff? And this is just speaking of the Antichrist, quick rise to power and all that good stuff. But when his time comes and there is a start and a stop time for him as well. God has already ordained that. When he would be born, 
probably already has been born. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's a really good thought that this guy's probably on the planet now. If we think that the Lord is coming back soon, this guy has to be on the planet now, right? So even if he's just like an infant or something, he's here. He's here, right? But we can't say that dogmatically either. But he has a birth date and he has a death date. Birth date and a death date. You're like, but he's the Antichrist. He's nothing to God. And as soon as he rises, he gets squashed. That's it. And he will only be allowed to do what God allows him to do. And what God is going to allow him to do is to fulfill his plan. And the Antichrist is going to think, well, this is my plan. God's like, no, no, that's cute. No, um, it's my plan. This is what's going to happen. And I'm going to use you. Why why is he going to use him? Because he's a willing vessel. Because he's willing to be used. Not that he wants to be used by God. He wants to be used, well, and there's, we know from Revelation, there's this unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The Antichrist loves being in that circle, loves being in that circle, okay? But there comes a day when, you know, these armies are going to rise up and all this good stuff, and then he's just, he's done. He's done. His time comes to an end. And I just wanted to read you guys this just a uh, couple of paragraphs here from Haley's Bible Handbook that spells this whole chapter out for us historically, okay? So he says, and it's, yeah, chapters 2, 7, 8, 9, and 11 contain the predictions for the four empires and the events um, from Daniel to Christ, okay? So this is a timeline from, from Daniel's time all the way until Jesus shows up. But it goes through this whole those specific chapters are going to cover Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire, Greek Empire, and it's divided into four groups. We already saw that. The wars of Syria and the Egyptian Greek kings, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the desecration of Jerusalem. We see that's from chapter 11, uh, from 175 to 164 BC. Roman Empire, it covers that as well. And it's going to talk about public ministry of Jesus, desecration of Jerusalem. Like all this is happening within these prophecies. But he goes on to say, Concerning these events and some of the names I threw out there, it says the third empire was Greece, founded by Alexander the Great. We know that now. On his death, uh, it was divided amongst his four generals, Greece, Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt. In this chapter, the kings of Syria are called the kings of the north, okay? Kings of Egypt were the kings of the south. Daniel's predictions of the movements of these kings were uttered 200 years before there was a Greek empire and nearly 400 years before these kings even existed. Uh, His minute description of their movements is almost extraordinarily parallel between the prediction and subsequent history. Chapter 11 is pre-written intertestament history is what they're saying. Here it's an outline of events answering to the verses in which they are predicted. Three kings in Persia, I I read to you guys their names, which I can't pronounce. The mighty king, that's Alexander. King of the south, Ptolemy of Egypt. Then it goes through the list of all this good stuff. And then even Bernice is mentioned in there and all this. But Right here towards the end, the contemptible person, okay? This is the Antioch Epiphanes guy. This is, uh, he's not the rightful heir. He got the throne by treachery. He made himself master of Egypt, partly by force and partly by cunning deceit. Ptolemy, the sixth son of Cleopatra, nephew of Antiochus, was defeated by treachery of, of his subjects. Under the guise of friendship of Antiochus and Ptolemy, they vied each other into treachery. That's that meeting at the conference table. Returning from Egypt, Antiochus attacked Jerusalem, slew 80,000, took 40,000, sold 40,000 Jews into slavery. Antiochus again invaded Egypt, but the Roman fleet 
compelled him to retire. He went and vented his anger on Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. He was helped by the apostate Jews, the exploits of the heroic Maccabean brothers. That's also, we, we talked about that as well. And then this guy says, as verses 36 through 45, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, Antiochus Epiphanes, question mark. Um, is it Mohammedan? His possession of the Holy Land? Possibly, that happened. Or is it the Antichrist? Or is it all three? And technically, the answer could be all three. Because we see that within all three of those, I mean, these things took place. And whether it be Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, ransacking the city, or then later it's conquered again, or then it will be conquered once more, kind of, so to speak, by the Antichrist. Basically, the Lord has all this stuff already spelled out, and he already knows what's going to happen. And here we sit on this day, and we have no idea where we're at on the timeline other than like, if this is the end, if you're looking at like a timeline of world history and like this is the end, you know, the really thick black line that says like there's nothing, you know, there's no more world history after this point, we're like right up against that, that black line. I mean, there's space. I'm sure there's a little bit of space, you know, because there's a few things that, that have to happen. But timeline, time years and all that stuff wise, we're not talking of like hundreds of years for any of this stuff to go down. We're only talking a matter of years. I mean, my goodness, the tribulation itself is only seven years long. It's only seven years long. That's not a lot of time. That's not a lot of time. Think back seven years ago. This is 2022, seven years ago, 2015. Doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? Maybe some of you are like, man, it seemed like forever ago. Um, not to me. Um, it feels like, oh, that was just, that's when I, I think that's about when I moved to Galveston. Yeah, that wasn't that long ago. That's Calvary Galveston came into being almost seven years ago. Time flies. And we're on that very last end. And so the, the only thing that matters right now to us is this. Well, where are you at on the side? Like, are you on the winning side or are you on the losing side? Because there's only two sides. There's no middle. There's no spectators, right? There's like winners and there's losers. And we don't, I know, we don't live in that world anymore where we like to identify like that, but that's how it is. There's winners and there's losers. And the winners are on Christ's side and the losers are on the enemy's side. And we're right down to it. And the, the Bible is just constantly letting us know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Oh, and you don't believe it? Read Daniel chapter 11 once again and open up a world history book and compare them. And it's like, yeah, this is going to happen. So you should be ready for it. You and I, we should be ready for what could possibly happen real technically at any time, any day now, any day now. Do we need to be afraid? Not at all. Not at all. We can march all the way to the end in full confidence of who we are and what he's done. You're on the right side. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know persecution, all that good stuff. I don't know. It doesn't matter because you win because he won. And that's it. Like, so it's just amazing when, when you look at these chapters and you see all this stuff spelled out and it's just like, so precise, so precise. And the thing I take away from it is, man, if he is that precise with these world events, why do I get so worried in my own little life? Why do I let anxiety come in and consume my soul? There's lots to worry about. I get that in this world. There's a lot to worry about. 
However, who holds your life in his hand? The very one who created you. The very one who holds all things in his hands. of Daniel is so interesting because many of the prophecies spoken of have played out in the course of history. What an amazing glimpse of what was to come ahead of time. If there's one thing that's for sure about prophecy in the Bible, it is going to come true. Some of these things might seem a little scary or altogether strange, but how cool is it that God brings everything to a place where he's in control? and he'll bring about good in the end. If you're wrestling with things being out of your control, be reminded through the book of Daniel that God has got this. Here at Bread for the Broken, we want to be a support to you in whatever you're currently walking through. And if you'd like to use us as a resource or just give a listening ear, we're here for you. Go to breadforthebroken.com and click on contact to leave a message for us. We'd love to get to know you in person, too. So join us Sundays or Wednesdays as we study God's Word together. Head on over to breadforthebroken.com to find out our service times and directions. We're so grateful for our listening audience. And if this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you consider teaming up with us in a financial way? Much is done to get these teachings on the radio, and we're thankful for those who feel led by God to contribute in such a way. Simply go to the About tab on our website and you'll find a donate link. Also, if you missed any part of today's teaching, you can find it on our website, breadforthebroken.com. Thanks again for listening today to Bread for the Broken. 